Section 86, The Memo, Part 2. Agility equals execution plus impact. One of the several one-liners I would employ in the process of articulating how the Windows team could improve. The previous section detailed the raw observations on Windows and services culture I saw after weeks of hearing about the situation from as many people as I could. I could not just put that out there without specifics of what I thought we could improve. I had to put some structure on what I learned and offer some optimism and some aspirations. Reflecting on this moment of both optimism and fear, today I look at the candor I expressed with a bit of amazement. I wrote with detail and assertiveness, yet seemed to forget that I was writing about the most successful business in the history of business. I was writing about hundreds of billions of dollars of market capitalization. I was writing about many friends. At the same time, there was so much that needed to be improved, or more specifically, to be repaired. I think what really motivated me were all those one-on-ones I did, and hearing all the different people expressing their pain and troubles, knowing that things could be better. This was not a team that was dug in, ready to resist change. It was a team waiting for change. It just needed to be the right kind of change. That reality made this much easier. I felt if I could document what was going wrong and broad populations agreed, then I was on a path to addressing challenges. If I could articulate reasonable aspirational goals, then what remained was to build a product plan on that rebuilt foundation of trust and management. I was quite worried that both the problems described and the aspirations I would document would seem cliche. With Bill G in particular, over the years he'd shown little patience for the broad topic of management. His worldview was always that by taking on the hard problems, the business would be best served while developers would be anxious to tackle such challenges. That recipe propelled Microsoft for 20 years of Windows, but was failing us now. Steve B. was never one for patience, and while he would be receptive to these management challenges, he was far more anxious about a plan and the timeline for the next product to address the concerns that were mounting about Vista. The company hung in the balance. Kevin had orchestrated a massive restructuring of the global sales force before taking over most of product development. He was deeply in sync with the idea of identifying organizational problems and then directly addressing those. The memo, Observations, Aspirations, and Directions for Windows and Windows Live, proposed three main areas to address. Decision-making, agile execution, and discipline excellence. Each was presented in a section with both observations and aspirations. These points will sound like random musings from any generic book on management, both at the time I wrote them and today in writing them out. The lesson learned, using the phrase from the previous section, is to demonstrate that these are more than cliches by, by citing specific examples that resonate with employees who are being asked to operate differently and specifics on exactly how we will achieve aspirations. Decision-making. Across all of Microsoft, decision-making had been a constant and nagging issue. We discussed it after every MS poll, the yearly survey of employee attitude and feedback. Each year I was left puzzled. It had never been an issue for our team in the MS poll or other feedback channels. I didn't understand what was so difficult about decisions. We made decisions all the time in office. So many, it wasn't even clear to me what decisions were so difficult. Then I arrived in the Windows hallway. There, it was an endless discussion over who owned a decision or who was accountable. And worse, 
People were asking me what model I used to make decisions. This was a reference to classic models of business function, or more aptly, dysfunction, that use a tool known as a Responsibility Assignment Matrix, RAM, which is one such tool, uh, also weirdly named for computer people, for decision-making. One labels participants as responsible, accountable, consulted, and informed, the RACI tool, another great name. Another tool, OARP, stands for Owner, Approval, Responsible, Participant. These tools consistently proved more frustrating, and there was little evidence that decisions were made with less effort, or more importantly, more staying power or higher quality. The use of these tools arose as a defense mechanism against executives and managers who were prone to, as I learned, swoop and poop, a metaphor that I came into as I assimilated the team. As with birds, many managers seem to show up at inappropriate times, issue a quick opinion or edict, and not stick around for the mess they left behind. How much of this was actually a mess or simply a reaction to executive authority or inability to influence decision-making would take time to untangle. The expectation for me as a new Windows executive was that I had a tendency to employ this swoop and poop technique, no matter my own personal history or approach. What I already knew to be the case turned out to be a big part of the problem, and that was a culture of escalation. In all software projects at scale, it is always the case that one team depends on another team to provide code, to consume code, to integrate things together, and more. And this extends to sales and marketing connections as well. In Windows, escalation seemed to be the way that most situations between teams were handled. It was a culture in which nothing was decided until people got in front of a VP, resulting in a culture where most of the middle management layer was simply biding time. And did I mention that there were seven or 10 management layers in Windows? Weaning the team off the culture of escalation proved to be one of the bigger cultural transformations I needed to make. It was also the root of the challenges over many years of work between Windows and Office. In a culture of escalation, Decisions made by people on the front lines, so to speak, rarely stick. If a Windows partner or a collaborator doesn't like the situation, then an escalation ensues, and rarely do things stay the same. Office loathed escalation. Decisions were pushed down and stay down. When people tried to escalate, they were told to work it out. The result was that when Windows tried to escalate decisions in working with Office, they rarely got overturned, which proved enormously frustrating to Windows. And when Office tried to make plans, they would often find them upended at executive escalation meetings with Windows. In Office, Office escalations happen so infrequently, I, I can't hardly recall any specific instances. In fact, we in Office had a saying, escalation is failure. Changing the culture surrounding escalation was going to be tricky. I decided to focus on consensus as a core tool for decision-making. I had to work hard to help people to understand that consensus was not the same as design by committee or groupthink. I'd always seen these as distinct when operating well. I also felt important to remove the tools, the two tools that all too frequently were used to avoid either committing to consensus or collaborating or to create dependencies between teams. They were agree to disagree and non-goals. Agree to disagree gave each team the freedom to act how they would have acted prior to coming together to reach agreement, while also getting credit for somehow trying. 
The result was a product design or development conflict which would fester through the development cycle and later become a customer problem. Non-goals offer up a list of all the things a product won't accomplish, which at first seems helpful. I mean, I never understood, though, how such a list could be finite since there's an infinitely long list of features and ideas not in the plan. In practice, it became a way to kneecap executive input on potential collaborations or connections to other parts of the product by simply stating them as non-goals up front. Executive presentations often began with a slide stating non-goals. Such presentations often ground to a halt to debate the non-goals as a result. So often the non-goals ended up looking as though the team was not getting anything done at all. There's a general rule to follow, which is never offer negative goals up front. Early readers of hardcore software might recall the story from Office 97 when I spent weeks unraveling the damage done when the routine status report included a very long list of feature cuts, non-goals, but no indication of what we were actually delivering. That was a bad idea. My new team had an over-reliance on metrics and processes as a mechanism to drive or force agreement on issues. This was exhibited by the constant drumbeat of red, yellow, green scorecard reviews in Windows or the KPI process in services. These processes took an enormous amount of energy while also creating a sense of disempowerment in the organization. The execution of these practices was fundamentally flawed. In both Windows and services, the culture developed around having a policing team derive and measure the results, which only created an us versus them dynamic. As one example, in services, the product planning staff or staff organization actually believed it had the job of, quote, determining the work that needs to be done by the 800 FTEs, which I heard directly from a planning manager. Yet most of the debate and discussion took place around, are these the right metrics or are we measuring this correctly as one might expect? And when the organization wants to do something, but the metrics did not all point in the right direction, the org still moved ahead. The result would undermine the entire KPI process. I offered a specific example that was going on in real time. The team was deciding whether to turn on the new Hotmail user interface for all users. The KPIs established by the planning team clearly said not to do this, but the engineering team needed to do so for testing and scale. Thus began a discussion over maybe it's okay to meet two of the five KPIs, or perhaps we should weight the KPIs. All the while, when you think about it, it was an engineering organization, and it was unable to determine if the software was ready. That was some seriously deep trouble. And this was the largest flagship service. These common techniques, decision-making frameworks, non-goals, agree-to-disagree, and metrics were too often employed in forums for deciding and seemed to have the exact opposite result. These were, however, just obvious signs of poor decision-making. It was apparent we can prove everything about deciding if I personally modeled behavior and worked from the top down to change the culture. With that in mind, the aspirations with respect to decision-making, including the following, which I'll summarize from the original here. Consensus among engineering peers. To avoid escalation, the team needed to arrive at a culture where experts in the code, no matter who their least common manager was, can come together to reach a consensus on what to do. Once a decision about what to do in code or design or test brings in general management, we have reached a failure point. Consensus among disciplines. A significant issue in decision-making was the failure for executive management to provide a framework for decisions. 
I saw too often that poor choices were the result of discipline silos or unsolvable situations. For example, executives pushing on development for a certain date while pushing on program management for more features while not giving testing enough time. To counter this, I offered an aspiration of reaching consensus across the engineering disciplines before escalating, while also committing to providing frameworks that allow for the unsolvable problems, schedule versus features, for example, to be solved. Agreeing to disagree is a failure. Too many decisions were actually never made. A key example I came across early was the big bet in Longhorn on Avalon, what became known as the Windows Presentation Foundation. WPF was shelved for a future release, but development continued. Yet at the same time, to ship Vista, the use of WPF, or its precursor, managed code from the .NET framework, were specifically precluded from shipping in Vista. In other words, on the one hand, a big bet did not play it, pay off and was effectively put on hold, on another, and on the other hand, it was banned from inclusion in the product altogether. This is a prime example of the kind of non-decision that was made at a time when the team desperately wanted and needed clarity. It would only be a matter of time until the Avalon team would just assume they would be a part of Windows again, and yet the whole Windows team that was shipping was busy making sure to never use the technology. Agree to disagree was a huge failure point. The online version has the original set of aspirations. Agile execution. No topic caused me more grief and angst than the phrase agile execution. The concept of agile execution, seemingly a religion with terms like scrum, sprints, and stand-ups, as well as a development process approaches and approaches that put experimentation on customers above all other methods, was top of mind on the services team. The team believed that the only way of addressing the poor results they were seeing was to move even faster and to become even more agile. While they were focused on this new methodology, the Vista team was gummed up, unable to do things, but somewhat irrationally believed that their problem was not taking enough time to get things done. The key leaders in Windows believed that the problems with Longhorn were that the team was not given enough time, enough time to complete WinFS, to complete Avalon, or other key initiatives. The services view was consistently expressed as Delivering internet services is entirely different than releasing boxed software. The use of boxed was always meant as an insult specifically aimed at me, even if occasionally said with a somewhat neutral tone. The implication was old, easy, and irrelevant. A key aspect I was informed about repeatedly was services do not use the waterfall approach, but rather they must iterate in the market. Waterfall was another code word for old and dumb. The problem with describing Office or Windows as waterfall was and is that this presumed a development process of writing specifications and handing off to development and then later testing, a sequence of discrete steps known as a waterfall. Implied was that there was never any notion of reevaluating what was going on, iteration, or that work was not done in parallel. Also implied was a perceived timeline of years. This was not how Office worked but there was no chance I would change their minds of those arguing for Agile. Whatever Office did, it was not Agile. And the proof was that the product took 24 to 36 months. Still, Office iterated throughout their milestone process and also updated the product with hundreds of changes each month. And those were based on data of how the product was being used in the real world. But that was only evidence of maintenance, not innovation. 
even though the vast majority of services updates were simply to keep things running and not new features. Roughly the equivalent in my book. There was little evidence of innovation in services to counter examples like this. As an aside, the entire notion of waterfall development has been misunderstood for generations. The first descriptions of the process came from Dr. Winston Royce and appeared in the Proceedings of IEEE Westcon from 1970 in an article, Managing the Development of Large Software Systems. Royce diagrammed out what became the canonical waterfall process of gathering requirements, analysis, program design, coding, testing, and so forth. One discrete step after another. Royce, however, unfortunate for all of us, meant for that diagram to be what not to do. In the full text, he explained how critical it was to iterate at each step to be successful. Yet because of that diagram, generations of engineers treated the process as a stepwise, discrete set of steps, one after another. Also, maybe IBM was to blame some as well. Nevertheless, many on the services and Windows teams perceived the office planning process, including a vision document, milestones, and so on, as a waterfall approach in the classic and incorrect manner. What I had learned as I gathered information ahead of writing my memo was that our use of these new agile methods was causing multiple real execution challenges. One example was the Spaces service, which was poorly architected for scale while racing to put new features in to compete with MySpace. In fact, they were asking me, the new person, for budget approval for a lot more data center spend because the costs per user on the free service continued to rise significantly and also non-linearly. That is, each new user being added to spaces was costing more than the previous users. Clearly, that was unsustainable. The most shocking example of management by self-induced crisis was Internet Explorer. In many ways, the symbol of a rapidly developed product, participation in the creation of internet time as it competed with Netscape from 1995 to 1999. Once the original Longhorn plan started in 2000 to 2001, development on Internet Explorer was, for all practical purposes, shut down. In my first days on the job, I met with the recently reconstituted IE team who had been given a, a hurry up and get things done for a release with Vista mission. A recognition of that Vista needed a browser as part of the Longhorn reset. Internet Explorer shipped with Windows XP in August of 2001. Here we are, almost five years later. And while there was a great deal of activity in terms of security fixes and supporting the myriad of Windows releases, nothing substantial in terms of product features was released. Ironically, Perhaps the intention in 2003 was to stop releasing standalone browsers to focus on integrating and synchronizing the browser with Windows. IE had effectively ceded the browser war to Firefox. Google's Chrome was still two years away, but there were rumors of its development. IE was riddled with security holes due to the use of Microsoft's ActiveX technology, and components were not architected for the modern security landscape. Whilst also it was falling behind on performance and web standards, IE had become a pariah on the internet and attracted scorn from the developer community. Realizing this, a crisis was created by the very people who ended development and essentially commanded an update of a browser in time for Windows Vista. This amounted to a classic arsonist firefighter dynamic within a culture that always seemed to love a good crisis. 
The good news, if there was any, was that Dean, Dean Hakamovich, D-Hatch, email name, the former Word and Office PM of autocorrect fame, was leading the new team. Reconstituted from across the company, this team was really coming together. In the first meeting I had with the team, all of the managers fit into one small conference room, though. The team was woefully understaffed for the work it needed to do. This was nine months before the product was to be completed. Dean was already kind of exhausted, but we found ourselves allies. In talking about IE with Bill G, Steve B, and Kevin Joe, the irony was not lost. Voluntarily ending work on the browser after a fairly well-known legal battle was an odd choice, to say the least. It was one I did not spend time trying to understand. There was also the idea that planning and being thoughtful was archaic, and the modern way of building products was via lean methods, as they became known. Get an experiment or something minimally viable to market, and then iterate. Though by this time, the biggest successes of these agile methods had also mostly imploded as companies during the dot-com bubble. On the other hand, most people were consistently surprised at how long even relatively thin featured products gestated before becoming viable and then successful. Managing every product like it might be the next Google search made no more sense than managing every product like it was a NASA mission. There was a rational approach in between, especially for products that were mature or necessarily focused on enterprise customers. The issue, as I would later discover, was one that none of my new management and recipients of this memo would quite know what to make of. The conversation would come back to needing a plan and me returning to the reality that the team hadn't ever developed and executed on a plan. That meant there was more needed than a slide deck with a set of features and a schedule, all while needing to find a way to agree at the highest level of some sort of development methodology. It also meant that the odd even curse around Windows might have been due at least in part to a lack of patience, and that regardless of my plan, the team might not have the patience to see it through. After a serendipitous reunion while going on a recruiting trip with Sarah Leary, email Sarah L., the product manager who represented Office at the Windows 95 launch event, she invited me to attend a class at Harvard Business School in 1998. Professor Marco Iancini taught his classic case study on the development of Microsoft Word for Windows the one where the Word team was called the worst development manager in Microsoft's history by my future manager and mentor, Jeff Harbers, email Jeff H. Marco and I got talking, and he invited me to spend the fall of 1998 helping to teach that very class with his colleague, Stefan Tomke, which proved to be an incredible learning experience for me. Marco later helped us to articulate our aspiration for agility as defined by agility equals execution plus impact, this is a way to talk about three challenges all at once without having to define what agility really meant or even that it meant fast or worse, faster. By focusing on execution, I was able to make clear the issue of simply failing to get things done, like MSN Messenger working correctly for people with more than one PC or the big features of Vista that were cut. With the addition of impact, I would discuss the issues of the services team spinning their wheels while not making any strategic process progress. This definition also helped me to avoid picking a specific development methodology, which was about as appealing as choosing to become ISO 9000 certified. That's a joke a few people will get. Instead, we would focus on planning, plans, and timelines using my favorite methodology of all, promise and deliver. 
To put a time scale on agility in my memo, I pointed back to Chris P's shipping software mantra and talk. Chris was my manager in office and had joined Microsoft to work on Mouse 1.0, Windows 1.0, DOS 1.0, and also led Excel Engineering, then Word, before leading office. I said we would aspire to a milestone-driven process with more than one milestone and a process to plan, execute, and evaluate and iterate. I had a great deal of difficulty bridging my experience in product cycles lasting years with the perception of needing to last days. No matter how much we talked about processes can scale, while also the absence of a process is still a process known as chaos. Across all teams, there existed a cacophony of agile development that was defined as a cultural high-order bit. In many years of working with teams as they moved into office or aligned with office, my experience was that there was some degree of correlation between teams executing poorly and having a very specific development and engineering process that the team was overly proud of creating. Such a process was one the team pioneered and was deeply committed to, even to the exclusion of success. This wasn't a causal relationship, but rather a correlation I just saw too often. Certainly teams with a unique methodology also executed super well, but that wasn't causal either, though they believed it was, and it was far less frequently seen. The challenge, or properly my baggage, office work differently than Windows, was more acute when speaking with the Windows teams. Windows felt they were not moving fast enough, but after six years of Vista, the more general view was that they were not given enough time. This was rooted in the way that Windows NT was developed, with architects and a lot of upfront design, in practice much closer to a historic waterfall approach. The project, which started approximately in 1989, was not ready for mainstream usage until almost 2000. And to many on the team, a decade was the expected amount of time it took to build a robust platform at scale. The Windows team had a belief that Office shipped releases mostly on time by cheating because it cut features from the product before it shipped. Paul Moritz emailed Paul Ma, the pioneering manager of Windows, including NT, and former CEO of VMware, often told me, You can't cut things from Windows like you can cut them in Office. In any discussion about Office processes, I always felt a bit of OS snobbery directed at me. Well, this could have been my own inferiority complex, there always seemed to be that unsaid feeling that Office was just a simpler product. For what it's worth, back in the day, Office people always thought that Windows was a perfectly good product to have in order to launch Excel and Word, but not much else. This was reinforced externally because Office on the Mac operating system was equally loved. We had our own expression of snobbery in Office. The two gardens continued to exist. There was another truth that emerged as I researched and tried to sell my plan. There was an overall perception of Office and by consensus me. Aside from cheating by cutting features, I was confronted with the perception that I was a tyrant, literally. The reason Office shipped on time and was so structured was because of how I ruled the team, by terror or some sort of ironclad grip on process. The more I talked to people, the more I learned of what I thought were crazy stories about how the teams worked, how I worked. Hearing them was like learning about some exotic culture across a vast ocean, not just another part of Microsoft, not my Microsoft. It was the first time I had to face the perceptions people had of me personally, but also had to reconcile how those positions perceptions could be so opposite of my reality. At times, the disconnect between perception and self-awareness had me questioning my own sanity. 
I understood how it could be intimidating just as any executive could be. But at the same time, I felt the team know I was fully supporting them and worked hard to avoid the trappings that would contribute to that perspective. It was all, after all, Windows where the manager punched his fist through a wall. It was Windows where people, including me, were regularly chastised in front of big war room meetings. It was Windows where managers often found out about changes to their schedule or plans via rumors or indirectly. I did none of those things. I didn't yell. I didn't skip over managers. I didn't escalate decisions or tolerate escalation. Generally, my biggest offense was writing lengthy emails late at night with too many points in them. And yeah, sure, occasionally a barb. Though I rarely replied all, and I did my very best to focus on ideas and products, not individuals in email. That, and refusing to go to endless meetings, especially early in the morning or when they were scheduled at the last minute, where, were my, where I regularly messed up. Besides, how can anyone hold a crisis meeting for a strategic discussion? Whatever my flaws as a manager, what I thought was going on was that the Windows team was looking for how they worked and assuming that to achieve the results Office achieved, it must be doing what Windows did, but just more or better. So more escalation, more big meetings, more VP decisions along with better PowerPoints and shorter lists of non-goals or maybe longer lists. That wasn't reality, but it was the reality I had to deal with, as out of body as it might have felt. In hindsight, I began to realize that the two gardens were not styles, but deeply held beliefs. Each of Windows and Office operated the way they operated and loved it. Each had achieved tremendous success in the market. Where I thought Windows achieved success in spite of how they operated, they saw their success because of it, and vice versa. It also happened that most visible cultural differences were almost always the opposites. Planning versus crisis, consensus versus a singular leader, cult of a team versus cult of a leader, promise and deliver versus overpromise and deliver, and so on. Even today, it can be challenging to describe the gardens without sounding judgmental one way or another. Top of mind during the transition were some of the more legendary efforts at cross-pollination between Windows and Office. Some extremely talented and senior people in Office had taken roles in Windows only to quickly return to Office sharing tales of their adventures. And while there were stories in the other direction, it often felt, often felt like we had more success with Windows people moving to Office. From the outset, I was deeply worried about that sort of rejection, knowing that I had nowhere to go back to. Our aspiration... Agility equals execution plus impact. The online version has a screenshot of the original memo aspirations. Discipline excellence. Despite having thousands of engineers with more seniority as defined by salary level than any other engineering team in the company, the team did not have the depth or breadth of talent, human capital, to build the products of, at scale that were being attempted. Sharing this observation was scary. It was both counterintuitive in thinking and felt like the height of arrogance. To Bill G, who valued IQ above all and prided himself personally on the IQ assembled to build Windows, to express this was, for lack of a better word, insulting. I used data to explain it. Something Pete H. once explained to me. You can't build a billion-dollar business out of 10 or more products, each doing $100 million. What he meant was the characteristics of a billion-dollar business are different than a collection of smaller businesses. 
He was referring to the struggles Microsoft was having in the home division. That pertained to my challenge at hand. We couldn't create a product team at scale for billions in revenue with 100 teams of 25 people each. A 2,500-person product team operating in unison was qualitatively different than all those small teams added together, even if headcount was the same. Even worse, it was almost always the case that the bulk of the value delivered was due to a small number of those teams anyway, leaving most of the team's work essentially unaccountable or even squandered. Windows was sold and experienced as one product, but it was organized as though a hundred small teams came together to create that product while operating essentially independent. What was supposed to make Windows be Windows was how all the pieces fit together. But there was no organization, however, to build that product. Simply put, the whole was not greater than the sum of the parts. The driving force behind all of these teams was to empower people to work outside the complexities of the bigger team. The team had found itself caught in a negative reinforcing cycle. It was too difficult to get things done because processes were failing, which caused management to assign senior leaders to work out of band or off the books to get truly important things done. Translation, make it a crisis, which made it harder to integrate those into the product and amplifying the overall difficulty of shipping the whole of Windows. This empowerment led to poorly integrated and architected products, such as Media Center and Tablet PC, as well as disconnected disconnected core architectures, such as DirectX graphics, networking, or security. The success of early Internet Explorer working this way reinforced this as a methodology, but all that came to a standstill once the goal of the product was to integrate it with the whole. That would be challenge enough, but accelerating the cycle was the existing approach to managing. In order to conjure up these small, agile teams, management pulled people from the ranks and gave them the responsibility for managing a team of developers, testers, and program managers, creating a product unit. PUMs, or multidisciplinary managers, MDMs was the HR expression. PUMs were a distinct manifestation of the old list of people and problems formalized as an org structure. For a culture that loved a good crisis, the heroics of being a PUM Managing a crisis became an aspirational job. As I was making the rounds talking with middle managers before writing this memo, a frequent topic raised was their desire to become a PUM and wanting to know my view of the career path to become a PUM in my new world. Speaking with PUMs, I learned time and time again, I heard, I work best overseeing a small multidisciplinary team. The problem was the lack of supporting evidence to prove that point. Being a PUM was a career goal for nearly every mid-level engineer, not being a great engineer. A direct result of pulling people from the ranks and promoting them to manage multidisciplinary teams was to cut off the pipeline of talented engineers and, more specifically, program managers. The very people who would be called upon to scale and manage larger teams of engineering leaders were robbed of the depth of discipline expertise that would train them to do so. As if this wasn't enough, these new leaders were then responsible for hiring, mentoring, and growing the next generation of leaders in job functions they had not even done at any level of seniority or tenure. As a result, most of these teams had a management structure where the PUM was also filling the role as development manager or group program manager, the titles for the roles of leading the job function. This further stunted the development of new leaders. To illustrate this point, 
I compiled the statistics of approximately 40 product units in the Windows and Services group, not including COSDI, but the numbers matched almost identically. It revealed that half the product units were being led by people who would not have been senior enough to be disciplined leaders in development, testing, or program managers in office. The online version includes this, these statistics in a pivot table. The lack of seniority was immediately recognizable in program management, arguably the most crucial role for achieving synergy in product design and features across a single product. Overall, though, Windows had more senior employees than Office as a percentage, but they were allocated to pure management roles, PUMs. The quest for PUMs and autonomy had pushed all the relatively senior talent to be managers of managers or their managers. That was a shocking realization. This was also a generational problem because the presence of PUMs robbed the junior engineers of opportunity. The Windows team had been robbed of a generation of talent development. Perhaps nothing was more shocking than the software test discipline, where once again, I was up against long-held beliefs by Bill G and Steve B in particular, that having testing was not a sign of success, but somehow represented a failure of tools and processes in engineering. For many years, I tried to have this debate or discussion, but simply ran out of ways to sound anything but defensive. But in truth, there was no engineering or manufacturing in any field without the role of quality assurance. And the more complex a product, the more testing it needed. Software projects brought with them two unique characteristics not seen in hardware or manufacturing. First, Windows for the most part provided programming interfaces to developers who would do all sorts of things some expected, but most not. Testers came to work and found ways to exercise those APIs by writing adversarial code against them. Second, every release of Windows shipped supporting every previous release and previous capability on all the hardware that existed and all the hardware that would come to exist. Of course, Windows had enormous libraries of automated tests and more were being added all the time but all they could do was tell you that you had not broken something that already worked the way you thought it should work. There was so much more to testing. I understood that startups and smaller projects could do without testing, as Microsoft and apps had done in the early days, but complexibility, extensibility, and backward compatibility caught up with every product. Later, when I made my case after sending the memo, I experienced a lot of friction on the topic of testing, because Steve B had been pushing teams to reduce headcount as a cost-saving measure. Both services and Windows had reduced headcount by reducing just testing and moving responsibility offshore where it was less expensive or to vendors. The services team, were where we would normally be one tester for every software developer, had half as many. As we learned in operating internet services offices, in office, testing wasn't reduced but rather some was shifted and shared with operations, which was also understaffed. Tactically, our plan was to aim for two important structural changes. First, we would dramatically reduce the height or depth of the organization. This was something that Stevie would get very excited about as he'd been trying to convince people to do just that and to understand Jack Welch's General Electric approach to org, span of control, and depth. At this time, everything Jack Welch said was undisputed business canon. Steve B, however, had run up against PUMS and the depth and minimal span of control that model imposed on an organization. This would dramatically alter the jobs and career paths of dozens of the most senior people on the team. It would be a very expensive change to undergo. Second, I proposed reducing the number of pure managers, 
those with no line responsibility, but who had management oversight. They did not write code, specs, or tests, but focused on the process. Some were needed, but the organization had too many, which contrasted with office where even the most senior discipline leaders were managing people and writing code and or fixing bugs. The online version has a reproduction of the aspirations of discipline excellence. At the strategic level, I used this memo to begin what I knew would be the most important management journey of my career, restructuring restructuring the Windows and Services team into a functional or discipline-led organization. A reality I could count on was that it seemed nothing could have messed up the Windows business, and hence all of Microsoft's revenue and profit at this point. In hindsight, what Windows had was the greatest product market fit in the 20th century, except maybe for oil. That stability enabled the company to thrive during the macro issues of recessions and wars. It thrived throughout the largest antitrust trial in our lifetime. It thrived through successive changes in leadership and company reorganizations. It thrived through the dot-com bubble and the restructuring of the PC manufacturing industry. More than anything, it thrived despite products that received lukewarm reviews at best and a lot of releases being broadly panned and nearly every single product being released to market years later than planned with notable quality issues. Windows had no trouble surviving the odd even nature of flawed products and changing leaders. To date, there had been no credible competitors or alternatives. As I write this story today, I realize just how wild that sounds. It was, however, true. In one exercise, my colleague Adriana Burroughs at our communications firm WAG-Ed researched key product reviews for all the Windows releases going back to Windows 3.0. Surprisingly, out of that selection, while some were glowing, Windows 3.0 and Windows 95, most were lukewarm to good, Windows 3.1, 3.11, and Windows XP, and many were quite painful to read, Windows 98 and Windows Me. Windows Vista was shaping up for reviews akin to the latter. Looking back on the reviews solidified my opinion that was much more of a Windows challenge than a Vista-only challenge. The business model and momentum were sustaining the product, not the march of continuously improving products and increasing customer satisfaction. At one point, I even suggested to Steve that Microsoft would have been fine not shipping several of the Windows releases. Heresy. To be fair, in hardcore software, I have pointed out that absent contractual obligations and staggered adoption of Office, it was not entirely clear the same would be said of Office. While I did not have the vocabulary of product market fit, I knew I had the luxury of being patient and deliberate. Steve B. showed remarkable restraint, even though every bone in his body wanted something fast. I was not going to rush. I was not going to have a short-term tactical plan to show we were awake or listening, something that had been suggested many times by people more senior than me and by very many subsidiary general managers. I knew we would spend a lot of time in push-pull conversations, but ultimately, I believed I had the support to do what I thought needed to get done. The goal was to have the whole organization collectively, including COSDI, deliver one Windows product to customers, OEMs, and enterprise and business customers. The cardinal rule of having everyone finish at the same time was to have everyone start at the same time. But with the Windows team still finishing and almost about to undergo a major organization change, I needed somewhat of a hybrid approach. 
This would also remove some of the pressure from the company to show progress, or worse, to make sure we did not look like a few thousand engineers were going into hiding. In this transition memo sent to Bill and Steve and Kevin, which I sent when Vista was still six months from shipping, I proposed an entirely new organization and an entirely new rationale for why we were going to operate together as one team. 